Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, nobody, nobody hired me as a television critic. But, you know, I'm sitting there watching. I got an opinion. And, um, and after it was over, and by it I mean the primetime hearing, I turned to um, my partner and I said, well, that was it? And she said, yeah, huh. And then we uh, tuned into everybody else, like um, Wolf Blitzer calling it a bombshell hearing. I did. I didn't even see um, tortoise shells, peanut shells. I didn't. All right. So here it is. You get one shot. If you're the January 6th committee. You get one shot in prime time to sort of say, hey, 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 mate, pay attention to this. This is important. This is a thing. And then you present two live witnesses, a documentarian who testifies that, uh, yeah, I think the uh, Proud Boys met with the Oath Keepers once that I was there for and the other was a policewoman who was injured in the line of duty okay Republicans aren't so pro-police when they got other priorities is what that showed I guess and that was the two I mean yes Congresswoman Cheney presented an opening statement but if you're trying to convince anybody that isn't already rooting for the January 6th committee and isn't already saying, well, put the guy in jail already. You would probably want to present witnesses, live witnesses, not four-second tape excerpts. And by the way, you, uh, you called upon the networks to give you prime time. Primetime goes from 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock Eastern Time. You you quit before 10. As if, well, we, we didn't have more than... Th I'm not a TV critic. And I will be watching Monday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday morning. But I'm not their target audience. Hey, January 6th committee, you want your target audience to tune in Monday morning? I know you have a lot of Congress people sitting there. They were sitting there with nothing to say or do on Thursday night. I know they're going to want to talk on camera, ask questions, do stuff on Monday. But why don't you ask if they'd scoot over and make room for another questioner? Say Whoopi Goldberg. Hello, welcome to the show.
from Santa Monica, California, where right outside the window you can actually see, or I just did, a monarch butterfly. Hope he's getting into Mexico or back. I can't. Anyway, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost forgot about the special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. He's still on the job, even though the thing isn't. Tens of millions of dollars disappeared from Afghan government bank accounts during the Taliban takeover last August. That's according to the CGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, issued a report this week detailing the collapse of the Afghan government and military. Just, <laughs> just in case you'd like to uh, marinate in the pain just a little bit more, the assessment examined allegations that Afghan government Officials, those were our our guys, took tens of millions of dollars with them as they fled the country. Former President uh, Ashraf Ghani, Ghani was accused of loading millions of dollars onto the helicopters that he and his close aides used to flee Kabul as the Taliban fighters walked into the city. After the Taliban's sudden military takeover, media reports emerged alleging Ghani stole over $150 million in government funds when he fled, that fed public anger with the former leader for leaving. His departure seen by many as the decisive event, according to the Washington Post, that allowed Taliban forces to uh, to stroll into Kabul. Sigar found the theft of millions by Ghani unlikely, but he said the former president did leave with some cash. Well, you got to have some cash. I mean, what, he's going to have Afghan Express traveler's checks? The Sigar added that the evidence indicates this number did not exceed a million, and may have been closer in value to 500000 U.S. dollars. He could have taken Ethereum. The report quotes one senior former official who fled with Ghani on the helicopter, stating everyone had five dollars to $10,000 in their pockets. No one had millions. The official was not named in the public version of the report. Ghani has repeatedly denied the allegations of theft, among the reasons Sigar found it unlikely Ghani stole millions as he fled are details of his finer, final hours in the palace. Sigar determined Ghani's departure was sudden, not leaving the leader or his aides time to collect the cash. The report also assessed that over $150 million in $100 bills, quote, would have been difficult to conceal, and if stacked end-to-end, would be somewhat larger than a standard American three-seater couch. I'd like, like to sit on that. Ghani and many of those who fled with him live in the United Arab Emirates. They welcomed him, they, it, welcomed him and his family on humanitarian grounds, which are uh, just behind the kitchen. Tens of millions of dollars remain unaccounted for. Sigar found evidence of $5 million taken from the presidential palace and tens of millions taken from the vault at the National Directorate of Security. That's the former government's main intelligence agency. The investigation has not yet determined whether the money was removed from the country by government officials. Quote, with Afghan government records and surveillance videos from those final days likely in Taliban hands. 
You'd recognize those. The thumbs are smaller. Seagar is currently unable to determine how much money was ultimately stolen and by whom. More to come, maybe? The money left over from America's longest war. And now, a little news about plastic. Plastic in general. It's getting very general. The rate of plastic waste recycling in the United States fell to between 5 and 6% last year. Some countries stopped accepting U.S. plastic waste exports and, at the same time, plastic waste generation surged to new highs. This is a report by the environmental group's Last Beach Cleanup and Beyond Plastics. It shows the recycling rate has dropped from 8.7% in 2018, the last time the EPA published recycling figures. They took the p pandemic off. The decline, as I say, coincides with a sharp drop in plastic waste exports, which had counted as recycled plastic. China and Turkey have implemented plastic import bans. How dare they? How dare... Th who do they think... And other countries set plastic waste contamination limits under the Basel Convention, which the United States didn't ratify. Must have slipped under the couch. The U.S. must take responsibility for managing its own plastic waste, said the report, which used 2018 EPA 2021 export and recent industry data to estimate the recycling rate from last year. The EPA didn't publish its updated yearly recycling rate data last year. EPA is aware of the report and will review the data, said a sp spokeswoman. That's reassuring. It will update its waste and recycling web page, she said, later this year. Plastic waste generation soars in the United States, faster than nuclear waste even. Per capita, plastic waste went from 60 pounds per year in 1980 to 218 pounds in 2018. That's a 263% total increase in um, about 40 years, almost 40 years. Hmm. Which leads to... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Microplastics. Think about it. What do you think about it? Yes, I will. I'm not sure we're thinking about it. A world severely blighted by plastic pollution is on track to see the use of plastics nearly triple in less than four decades. According to findings released this week, annual production of fossil fuel-based plastics are set to top 1.2 billion tons by 2060, and waste will exceed 1 billion tons according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Well, see, if you're looking for economic cooperation and development, you're going to... Even with aggressive action to cut demand and improve efficiencies, plastic production would almost double in less than 40 years, according to the report from the 38-nation body. Globally coordinated policies, though, could hugely boost the share of future plastic waste that is recycled up to maybe 40 percent. There's increasing international alarm over volume and omnipresence of plastic pollution and its impact. 
infiltrating the most remote and otherwise pristine regions of the planet. Microplastics have been discovered inside fish in the deepest recesses of the ocean and locked inside Arctic ice. You've heard most of those reports. There's another one coming up. The debris is estimated to cause the deaths of more than a million seabirds and over 100,000 marine mammals each year. The chief of the OECD said plastic pollution is one of the great environmental challenges of the 21st century. Since the 1950s, roughly 8.3 billion tons of plastics have been produced, with more than 60% of that tossed into landfills, burned or dumped directly into rivers and oceans. Some 460 million tons of plastics were used in 2019, twice as much as 20 years earlier. The amount of plastic waste has also doubled. Currently, nearly 100 million tons of plastic waste is either mismanaged or allowed to leak into the environment. Well, that's what the environment's for. Earlier this year, the United Nations set in motion a process to develop an internationally binding treaty to limit plastic pollution. I want to be one of the cops that enforces that. Scientists with UC Davis now have proof that certain hearty disease pathogens can attach themselves to microplastics and travel long distances on land or in water. They do this by adhering to sticky biofilms that form on the surfaces of microplastics. We already know that microplastics exist in pretty remote areas of the ocean, said uh, Dr. Emma Zhang. If those microplastics are carrying diseases, those diseases could infect animals in regions they otherwise would not be able to. Zhang and her co-author worked with a team to study three specific disease pathogens, including Giardia and Cryptosporidium, both of which can cause stomach illnesses in humans. Microplastics carrying these pathogens can travel long distances on the ocean or sink to lower depths. That is where animals like shellfish can ingest them and accumulate plastic and their associated pathogens in their bodies, and then we eat them. That would have really important implications both for our own health as human consumers of seafood, but for the health of marine mammals that really depend on these food webs, Zhang said. These kind of pathogens can easily survive in water from weeks to years in seawater. Further research is needed, <laughs> as always, from the Further Research is Needed Institute. Now, um, from Scientific American, a microbiologist's laboratory, Christian Rinke, features a startlingly loud crunching noise, worm-like larvae chewing their way through polystyrene. The um, larvae, Zophobus morio beetle larvae, they're, double, they're dubbed superworms for their large size. They're uh, being fed plastic to see if the microbes and enzymes in their gut might offer insights into how to break down some of the staggering amount of plastic waste. The researchers have found that these superworms, attention, Warner Brothers, franchise, franchise, can, tentpole can survive on a diet of nothing but polystyrene, which is used, you know, from cups to packing peanuts, or packing peanuts. The worm's ability to process the plastic suggests it is very efficiently broken down 
in the creature's digestive tract. They're basically like eating machines, says uh, Rinky, who works at the University of Queensland in Australia, and co-authored a new study describing his team's findings, published this week in Microbial Genomics. I read it for the ads. To investigate how superworm's gut biome reacts to a purely plastic diets, the researchers split 135 creatures. No, they didn't. No, not as, as groups, into groups. They didn't split. No, don't. They weren't putting. One was fed only wheat bran. Another was fed only soft polystyrene. Well, soft, sure. And the third was given nothing. Nothing. All the worms were monitored for cannibalism. Good. Got to watch out for that. Members of the starved group were isolated from one another. The bran-fed larvae were significantly healthier than their plastic-fed or starved counterparts, doubling their weight over the three weeks of the test. Nine out of the ten bran-fed worms grew successfully into beetles and maintained the most diverse gut biome of all three groups. The plastic-fed plastic fed larvae made less impressive gains, but they still put on more weight than the starved worms, and two-thirds of them grew into beetles. Clearly polystyrene in the ideal diet, Rinky says, but it seems they can extract at least some energy from the material. Why, they could eat all our plastic. Waste. They better hurry. Microplastics have been found in freshly fallen snow in Antarctica for the first time. That could accelerate snow and ice melting and pose a threat to the health of the continent's unique ecosystems. Maybe they shouldn't be so bloody unique. The tiny plastics smaller than a grain of rice have previously been found in Antarctic sea ice and surface water, but this, this, ladies and gentlemen, is the first time it has been reported in fresh snowfall. Research was conducted by a uh, Ph.D. student at the University of Canterbury, published in the science journal The Cryosphere. The team collected snow samples from the Ross Ice Shelf in late 2019 to determine whether microplastics had been transferred from the atmosphere into the snow. We were optimistic that we wouldn't find any microplastics in such a pristine and remote location, said the supervisor of the study. That was an unnecessary precaution, having some other microplastics to study. Plastic particles were found in every one of the 19 snow samples taken from the Ross Ice Shelf. It's incredibly sad, but finding microplastics in fresh Antarctic snow highlights the extent of plastic pollution into even the most remote regions of the world, said the chief researcher who found an average of 29 microplastic particles per liter of melted snow, which is higher than uh, concentrations previously found from the surrounding Ross Sea and Antarctic Sea Ice. Thirteen different types of plastic found, the most common being PET, the plastic commonly used to make soft drink bottles and clothing. If only you could wear the bottles. Atmospheric modeling suggested they may have traveled thousands of kilometers through the air. It's equally likely, though, that the presence of humans in Antarctica has established a microplastic footprint. 
There was a photo we found, said the researcher, of some marker flags that are put out for use for wayfinding around the base. Those colors on those marker flags match the most commonly colored microplastics that we found in the environment, i.e. the snow. Prior research by the team has shown that microplastics in the atmosphere can trap radiation emitted by the Earth and contribute to climate change. Dark microplastics in icy surfaces could absorb sunlight and lead to localized warming. The plastics can also be toxic for animals and plant life, says the supervisor of the research down, down there. We're still learning a lot about the impacts, but from what we know so far, it's not very good. Just one word, ladies and gentlemen, microplastics. And now, news of our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Well, the Canadians, they seem to be a little ahead of us in um, storing nuclear waste, storing spent nuclear fuel, for example. Canada is getting closer to moving all its spent nuclear fuel to a single facility. They would encase each fuel container in bentonite clay. So researchers are studying whether that clay could support microbial life, microbes which could eat away at the metal containers. Quote, I found that microbial life always surprises us, says Myrna Simpson, one of the researchers and a professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough's Department of Physical and Environmental Sciences. Microbes, she says, will grow in the strangest places. Unquote. So the proposed storage facility, a deep geological repository, would sit deep underground in one of two sites in Ontario. Every room storing nuclear waste would be packed and sealed with bentonite clay. That's a swelling material mm-hmm. that helps dissipate heat and reduces water movement when packed tightly. Mm-hmm. But the clay is mined from a natural deposit in Wyoming. It will inevitably arrive embedded with tiny bits of organic matter. Microbes will also be in the clay and rocks surrounding the facility and in groundwater that may pass through it. Some of that microbial life may produce sulfide, a chemical compound that could lead to corrosion of the metal containers holding the used fuel. That wouldn't be so good. To test if the microbes can grow, the group building Canada's facility brought together several professors. A five-year study recently awarded $2.8 million Canadian in funding. My lab has the capacity to study the organic matter chemistry, but what does that mean in terms of the microbiology, says one of the researchers. By combining forces, we can put results together in a holistic manner. The team will study samples of groundwater and surrounding rock at the two proposed sites for the uh, facility. The results will help decide on a location along with other aspects of the project. If we find conditions that promote microbial growth, this information can be factored into the design to minimize potential risks. Canada has about 3 million bundles of used nuclear fuel, 
that contains the solid uranium that powers nuclear reactors. They're stored in above-ground containers at seven facilities across the country. 90,000 bundles added every year. The containers only last about 50 to 100 years, but used nuclear fuel must be stored for one million years before its radiation levels return to that of naturally occurring uranium ore. Just one more time, ladies and gentlemen. Used nuclear fuel must be stored for one million years. That's from the University of Toronto. And uh, they've stored something so far for, what, 60 or 70? Sure. Meanwhile, French prosecutors are investigating claims that officials at a nuclear power station covered up incidents of malfunction at an aging plant. The move follows a legal complaint filed by a whistleblower, an engineer at the Tricastin power station in the southeast of France. Ah, the French. In his complaint to police last October, a um, an engineer at the plant, he was uh, targeting the nuclear plant operator, EDF. His, in, his uh, identity was not given, said he had repeatedly alerted his employer to the incidents and had written to the environment minister as well. Events that the operator failed to declare to the National Safety Agency or played down include an unexplained power surge at one of the station reactors five years ago and flooding inside the station the following year, according to the engineer. An investigating magistrate in the southern port city of Marseille is now probing the power station for fraud and endangering the lives of others, according to a legal source. Other suspected violations include damage to the environment by leakage of toxic substances, obstructing checks by nuclear inspectors, and workplace harassment of the engineer. He says he was sidelined after sounding the alarm. France derives about 70% of its electricity from nukes. It's been exploring a possible extension of a lifetime of its aging plants, several of which are coming up against their 40-year limit, including Tricastin. In February, the president of France called for a rebirth of France's nuclear industry with 14 new plants, part of efforts to move away from fossil fuels. Because they're clean, cheap, safe, too safe to meet are our friend, the Atom. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't often play a particular piece of music more than once or twice on this program. So much music, so little time. But uh, we're at a moment when the uh, war in Ukraine is well past day 100, and um, wheat and other uh, agricultural products from Ukraine are not getting out to the world, particularly the southern hemisphere world, because of um, the blockage of Black Sea ports by Russia. So it seemed to me time to uh, hear this one more time.
from Santa Monica. This is Le Show. Well, de- despite my uh, doubts, critique of the uh, primetime hearing this week, 20 million people saw it, some part of it. Um, maybe they'll come back. We know that um, during the presentation, the opening statement, really, by the prosecutor, in this case, uh, Representative Liz Cheney, there were excerpts from depositions by, among others, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Now, the um, the reaction from Mar-a-Lago was directed mainly at a quote attributed to the former guy uh, on January 6th when demonstrators, rioters, insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, were yelling at one point, hang Mike Pence. And um, part of the presentation by Representative Cheney included a White House official who said that in the White House on that day at that time, then-President Trump said words to the effect of, that might not be a bad idea. Maybe our our, uh, supporters are right. He deserves it. And former President Trump did issue a statement, I believe later that night, saying, I did not say that. So we'll see, maybe, if that person turns up to testify live in one of the hearings this week. But down in Mar-a-Lago, there must have been more reaction than that. This week, for the first time, watching TV did qualify as work. And for the former businessman turned former chief executive, business and family ran together again. So, Ivanka, (laughs) we don't, uh, I don't see you down here that often. No, well, uh, we've been settling into our own place down here, and uh, now Jared is sort of involved with the new Saudi golf tour, so... What the hell does he know about golf? I don't know if you've seen his putts, but I sure have. Well, I think he's concentrating more on the business side of the tour. He says it's endorsements, not endorphins. Yeah, that's cute. He should write for Peanuts. Not the comic strip, the salary. So listen, my darling daughter. Uh-oh. Nothing good ever follows those words. Ah, we're good. I'd still bang you if you know you weren't... Your daughter, yes, Daddy, I know. But I... So there is a but. I knew there had to be a reason why we were meeting in the small parlor. Nah, they're cleaning the big one. Hmm. But I, I do have to ask you, what was that clip of you they showed in the hearing the other night? I came in to do a deposition. They requested me, so I came. So did Jared. That's the first thing. Hmm? He was lit better than you. <laughs> what was it with that? You looked like you were in a Chinese hostage video. Well, I, I didn't know they were going to show it on all the networks. Oh, they didn't, honey. It wasn't on Fox. So uh, only the radical socialists saw it, but still. Our people thought it was much better for us to go in quietly answer their questions, and leave quietly rather than 
make a big fuss. Oh, oh, you don't think this is a big fuss? <laughs> They're all comparing it to Watergate on steroids, and you guys don't want a big fuss. I, Let me tell you, sweetheart, want one or not, you got a big fuss. A big freaking fuss with me. You know me well enough to know I don't do small fusses. I tried to be very vague in my answers. Oh, that shouldn't be hard. The only time you're not very vague is when you're very asleep. You mean saying you believe Bill Barr rather than your own father was a nice thing to do for the dad who got you all those business licenses in China? I said he influenced me. I didn't say he influenced me more than you. They used ten seconds of a three-minute answer to that question. Ivanka. Who won the 2020 presidential election in this country? Dad, I know this pains you very much to hear me say this. But Fox News called Arizona for Biden. Fox News! What did Sean Hannity say when you asked him that question? Or did you? Sean Hannity is not my flesh and blood. I didn't take him to A-plus-plus steakhouses when he was too young to have taste buds, right? So look, sweetheart, we could do this all day, but I got to go watch the Saudi golf tournament. I gave them that idea at that meeting where we stood with that orb thing. You've got a task for this week. Well, I think, I, I hope I You're can... going to be called to testify at the witch trial, right? The hearing, yes. You've had some time to think since that phony deposition. You've learned some things about Bill Barr. You've seen the papers proving my paternity of you. You get the idea? So, can you do it? I, I think I need to go. They look like they're ready to clean the small parlor. New team. New tasks. Same mission. We're going to make seditious conspiracy great again. Now, the beach is his boardroom. The Mar Apprentice. This week, a hearing isn't a believing. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart, smart world. Yeah, I'm getting sick of it too. California regulators this week gave a robotic taxi service the green light to be in ch begin charging passengers for driverless rides in San Francisco. This is in California, as I say, where dozens of companies have been trying to train vehicles to steer themselves on increasingly congested roads. Oh, by the way, the uh, taxi service will be from 10 in the evening to 6 in the morning. Just so you know, not that big a threat yet. The uh, Public Utilities Commission granted Cruise, a company controlled by GM, approval to launch its driverless ride-hailing service. Regulators issued the permit despite safety concerns, according to the Associated Press, arising from Cruise's inability to pick up and drop off passengers at the curb in its autonomous taxis. The vehicles are required to double park in traffic lanes in order to pick up and drop off passengers. There'll be just 30 electric vehicles combined 
to transporting passengers in the less congested parts of San Francisco in the less congested hours. These restrictions are designed to minimize chances of the robotic taxis causing property damage, injuries, or deaths if something goes awry. That's nice. Cruise and another robotic car pioneer, Waymo, already have been charging passengers for rides in parts of San Francisco in autonomous vehicles with a backup human driver present, you know, to take control if something goes wrong. But now Cruise has been cleared to charge for rides in vehicles that will have no other people in them besides passengers. They've been hailed as a way to make taxi rides less expensive, while reducing the traffic accidents and deaths caused by reckless human drivers. But um, some transportation experts, whoever they might be, you know, people who ride around a lot, I guess, have asked the Public Utilities Commission to move cautiously. Many of the claimed benefits of autonomous vehicles have not been demonstrated, and some claims have little or no foundation. That was the testimony of Ryan Russo, the director of the Transportation Department in Oakland, just across the bay. He uh, testified to that effect just last month. And, on a related subject, an investigation into the safety of Tesla's autopilot system has been upgraded from a preliminary peak to a formal engineering analysis. That step could put the Musk-owned motor company on the path to a recall of nearly one million vehicles. The investigation being conducted by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration began last year due to a series of crashes in which a Tesla with autopilot in- engaged, crashed into in-road or with roadside emergency vehicles, responding to existing accidents. Well, it's just another accident then. The investigation is limited to 2014 through 2022 YX, S, and III vehicles, about 830,000 are on the road. The NHTSA, NHTSA, said it found reasons to explore the degree to which all of pilot and associated Tesla systems may exacerbate human factors or behavioral safety risks by undermining the effectiveness of the driver's supervision. That is to say, the agency is concerned that autopilot is making people behave badly behind the wheel. A quarter of the accidents involved autopilot being used in an area where it wasn't supposed to be, like a surface street or a low-visibility environment. Hmm? A surface street? Not supposed to be used on a surface street? That sounds useful. Drivers apparently had their hands on the wheel in 86% of the cases for which that data was available. And it's NHTSA's preliminary exams are largely reviews of complaints and manufacturer documents and records. After concluding that, they're either closed or elevated to engineering analyses. In that case, the EIAA, the engineering analysis, is undertaken if data from a preliminary evaluation indicate further examination of a potential safety defect is warranted. NHTSA didn't say whether Autopilot was specifically at fault. They'll be trying to determine whether driver attentiveness or Autopilot programming was actually the result of the accidents. 
couple of years ago, a Tesla Model X plowed into two parked police vehicles, which were investigating an additional car, resulting in serious injuries to five human officers, as well as a canine cop named Kodiak. The officers sued Tesla. An additional Tesla accident earlier this year resulted in the first ever U.S. case of an individual being charged with vehicular, vehicular manslaughter when their Model S went through an intersection with autopilot engaged, striking a Honda Civic and killing two people. Tesla had no response to a request for comment because they disbanded their PR department. Just wait for a tweet from Elon. Come on. And now, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Dateline Lehigh, Utah, a chocolate shop there has apologized for racist and offensive names of their specialty Twinkies. They received sharp criticism after a photo was posted online. There's a photo of a milk chocolate-covered Twinkie next to a dark chocolate-covered Twinkie from a chocolate workshop in Lehigh. found its way into the popular ex-Mormon subreddit on Reddit. The chocolate shop named the lighter-colored Twinkie Hill Komara Nephite and the darker chocolate-covered Twinkie Hill Kumara Lamanite. That may seem confusing. The terms Nephite and Lamanite refer to tribes of people described as having settled in the ancient Americas, according to the Book of Mormon. The Lamanites, Lamanites, began as wicked rivals to the more righteous Nephites. Lamanites are described as having received a skin of blackness to distinguish them from the Nephites. The Hilkumara is where it's believed that church founder Joseph Smith received the golden plates. Online backlash to the naming of the treats was strong. One Redditor posted, You can't make this stuff up. Racism is alive and well in the church. After being made aware of the negative reactions, the store, Just Add Chocolate, was quick to change the names of their Twinkies. Just Hill Kumaras. The shop went on to acknowledge the names had been inappropriate. We realize the previous names were racist and offensive. I deeply apologize for that and commit to being more sensitive about the messaging of our chocolates in the future. Unquote. Here's a Republican running for Congress in western New York State, Carl Palladino. He said this week he was wrong to invoke Adolf Hitler when he said in an interview last year he was, quote, the kind of leader we need today because of his ability to rally crowds. He's referring to Hitler. Second time this week, he had to explain himself after launching his campaign. In an interview on WBEN radio in February last year, he brought up Hitler when asked by the host about how to rouse the population and get people thinking about the possibility of change. Quote, I was thinking the other day about somebody had mentioned on the radio Adolf Hitler and how he aroused the crowds. And he would get up these, they're screaming, these epithets, and these people were just, they were hypnotized by him. That's, I guess, I guess that's the kind of leader we need today. We need somebody inspirational. We need somebody that is a doer, has been there and done it. So it's not a strange new world to him, unquote. After 
a recording of that conversation was published this week. He said in a statement that any implication that his comments meant he supported Hitler would be, quote, a new low for the media. He said he was wrong to mention the Nazi leader at all. Quote, I understand that invoking Hitler in any context is a serious mistake and rightfully upsets people. I strongly condemn the murderous atrocities committed against the Jewish people by Hitler and the Nazis, including towards my own Italian family, the statement said. Earlier this week, Palladino shared then deleted a conspiracy-laden Facebook post suggesting a racist mass shooting in his hometown of Buffalo and other mass killings were part of a plot to take away people's guns. He first told the Buffalo News it was posted by someone else with access to his account. Then he later said he posted it because it was written by a friend. During his campaign to win the Republican nomination for governor 12 years ago, he was widely criticized over a pattern of forwarding racist jokes about black people to a circle of friends by his company email account. He apologized and won the party's nomination. <laughs> it, gets, it gets worse. He was ousted from the Buffalo School Board six years ago amid an uproar over statements he made to a local newspaper in which he wrote he wanted to see President Obama di- dead of mad cow disease and First Lady Michelle Obama, quote, return to being a male and let loose in the outback of Zimbabwe, where she leaves comfortably in a cave with Maxie the gorilla, unquote. He later acknowledged those comments were inappropriate. He had also drawn complaints from Jewish groups during his run for governor. A newspaper quoted him as calling the Jewish leader of the New York State Assembly, quote, an antichrist or a Hitler. Carl Palladino, ladies and gentlemen. A um, British member of parliament and actually a member of the uh, government, so government min- cabinet minister to boot, has apologized after describing Blackpool as a god-awful place. The town's council leader has blasted Heather Wheeler's comments as ignorant and ill-advised. Not untrue, though. Didn't, didn't say that. Wheeler, who's a parliamentary secretary at the cabinet office, later apologized and said she made an inappropriate remark that does not reflect my actual view. Here's a great Britishism for you. The uh, opposition leveling up secretary, well, that's one, Lisa Nandi tweeted of uh, Wheeler's joke, quote, what an absolute shower. Look for that to come over here shortly. Wheeler did apologize while speaking at a conference on Thursday. I made an inappropriate remark that does not reflect my actual view. I apologize for any offense caused or any showering. No, she didn't say that. The BBC has apologized and said it will re-edit footage on its iPlayer service after it flashed up the wrong flag to represent Northern Ireland during the Queen's Jubilee celebrations outside Buckingham Palace. They showed the tricolor which is the flag of the Republic of Ireland, not Northern Ireland, which is part of Great Britain. Whoops. Whoopsie there. The Paris police chief apologized for and justified the pepper spraying of fans and families among the chaos that engulfed the Champions League soccer final last month 
outside the Stade de France. <laughs> the French. At a French Senate hearing looking for explanations for the fiasco, Paris police prefect Didier Lermont admitted that the evening in the suburb of Saint-Denis was, quote, obviously a failure because people were being pushed around or assaulted while we owed them safety. It's also a failure because our country's image was shattered. He maintained, though, that the police were responding to the presence of tens of thousands of supporters without tickets or with forged tickets close to the main points of access to the venue. So they were pepper sprayed. I'm well aware that people of good faith were gassed, says Lailmont, and I'm totally sorry for that. But I repeat, there was no other way. And they're going to hold the Olympics. All right, then. And um, in case you're looking for the best example of the difference between Canada and America, I submit this. This week, the Vancouver City Council apologized for the injustices enacted upon the Italian-Canadian community during the Second World War. The proclamation was presented to several members of the community, including two descendants of the interned. Quote, we hope the apology contributes to acknowledging this truth about the past, which is a crucial part of moving forward in ensuring the past injustices are not repeated in the future. What happened? Following the declaration of war against Italy by the federal government in 1940, certain Italian men were deemed enemy aliens. As a result, nearly three dozen men in Vancouver were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to prisoner-of-war internment camps, despite governments having no proof of wrongdoing. Many families were, of, of the internees were not in, notified as to where their loved ones were taken or given definitive reasons as to why or when they'd been apprehended. No communication between the interned men and their families was allowed for approximately two weeks. Most of these men were the breadwinner for their families. Their internment caused major emotional trauma. None of them are still alive today. Vancouver extends this apology to their surviving loved ones and the Italian community, Italian-Canadian community in Vancouver. 30 men how many uh, Japanese did the United States intern under similar circumstances? 120,000. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this week's show. Back next week, the same time over these same radio stations and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it would be just like the hearings this week, having live witnesses who can tell us stuff. If 
It'd be just like that if you'd agree to join with me then. Will you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to um, Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this broadcast, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, and the playlist of music heard here on all at harryshear.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network.